We want to thank you for listening to audio from the Hill Church. We exist to glorify God by declaring the gospel of Jesus Christ through our lives together. If you'd like to learn more about our ministry or donate online, please visit us at thehillsd.org. Good morning again, church. If you have a Bible, you can turn to the book of 1 Peter, please. 1 Peter is where we'll be at today. I'm going to ask you a question. What, what comes to mind when you hear the word ordinary? Maybe something positive, maybe. Probably for most of us, something we want to avoid at all costs. Lame. Okay, I like that. Lame, huh? Ordinary, though. What comes to mind when you hear ordinary? And the book titled Ordinary, Sustainable Faith in a Radical, Restless World, Michael Horton opens with these words. Quote, radical, epic, revolutionary, transformative, impactful, life-changing, ultimate, extreme, awesome, emergent, alternative, innovative, on the edge, the next big thing, explosive breakthrough. You could probably add to the list of modifiers that have become, ironically, part of the ordinary conversation in society and sadly in today's church. Most of us have heard expressions like these often, so often that they've become background noise. We tune them out, unconsciously doubting what is offered because if it has become so predictably common. As my grammar teacher used to say, if you make every sentence an exclamation or put every verb in bold, then nothing stands out at all. I don't know about you, end quote. I don't know about you, but it seems everything today requires an exclamation mark. Our culture conditions us to relentlessly pursue after everything new, after the latest and greatest, and that which, is, that which promises radical, quick change in our lives. Ordinary has really become extraordinary in our culture. Ordinary has become one of the loneliest words in our vocabulary today. And yet ordinary is what it means to be a faithful Christian. Now, I want to be clear this morning, there is nothing ordinary about God's global plan of redemption for the world. We were in Ephesians chapter 1 last week, right? We have seen before time, in time, and the summing up of all things in His great plan. Nothing ordinary about that. There's nothing ordinary about becoming a Christian and embracing our identity as God's people. We talked about that. There's nothing ordinary about the kingdom of God. It is the treasure and the pearl we must be willing to sell everything to obtain. So when I refer to ordinary, I mean nothing of a passive, passionless life seeking to blend in at all costs as Christians. That's not what I mean at all. Please don't understand me. And yet while all this is true... The call of the Christian life as the people of God, advancing the mission of God, is really a call to embrace a life of ordinary faithfulness. That's what I want us to focus on this morning. Particularly, I want us to focus on that in the middle of our, of our sermon series calling uh, Treasuring Christ Together. I said in the beginning, the first two weeks, we emphasized the incomparable value of the kingdom of God and the significance of our identity as the church, whom God has made us in Christ, we said. We said our call is to live for the mission of God as the people of God 
while we're in the kingdom of man. This led us last week to focus our time on time. We talked about time. We noted how we are to maximize what truly matters by living under the control of the Spirit as God's people. And this morning, I want to ask the question, or we want to ask the question really, how do we maximize what truly matters? How are we to, we looked at the word last week, how are we to redeem the time as God's people? We need to be ordinary. That's what we need to be. I want to show you that this morning. So, you see, there's a, there's a danger in allowing the culture's restless pursuit of the extraordinary, I think, to define the way we live our Christian life. When we do this, I think we become disillusioned by the day-to-day faithfulness God calls us to. Always aiming at the extraordinary experience can and will cause us to miss the ordinary life of the gospel. Yes, God calls us to take part in His extraordinary plan of redemption. He calls us to be the extraordinary people of God in the kingdom of man. That's what it means to be the church. But He does so. He calls us to this life through His ordinary means of ministry. Here's my main point this morning. From 1 Peter chapter 4. We we treasure Christ together by faithfully giving ourselves to His ordinary means of ministry modeled and empowered by the gospel. We treasure Christ together as the Hill Church by faithfully giving ourselves to His ordinary means of ministry modeled and empowered by the Gospel. First Peter chapter 4, I'm going to begin reading in verse 7 down to verse 11. Peter says this by way of the Holy Spirit. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another, as, God, as good stewards of God's various grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God has supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Father, we we begin. We want to begin where our brother Peter left. With an amen. Yes, it is, Lord. Show us that in our text this morning. Lord, from the Word of God, Help us, Lord, to embrace the reality of being ordinary. Because by so doing, we can magnify, glorify, lift up, point people to the extraordinary glory of your great name. Be with our time, Lord. Mold us and shape us by your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Now, now, Peter writes to a group of, of, of really ordinary people. He opens his first letter here by describing his readers as elect exiles, as strangers in the world, 
We see this in 1.1. Scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Peter writes to a scattered, persecuted, and suffering church. He writes to a, a group of people who are overlooked by the culture and outside of what is uh, normal, acceptable, and truly matters. Church, this is who we are. We are immigrants. We're foreigners. We're temporary residents and refugees in the kingdom of man. We do not belong here. We neither possess nor desire to possess the rights of most citizens. We're outsiders. We live on the edge of culture. So Peter writes to an ordinary people, to his context and to us. But Peter also calls his readers to embrace an ordinary type of life. In the midst of their circumstances, in the midst of their suffering and persecution, we might expect Peter to call them to take up some ordinary, extraordinary means in the culture. Yet he doesn't. He calls them to take up the ordinary life of the Christian faith. He calls them to live a specific way for a specific purpose as God's specific people in this world. And he calls them to be extremely ordinary for the glory of our great God. He tells them to pray. He tells them to love. He tells them to serve one another. And he says, by so doing, they will take part in advancing the extraordinary glory of God in Jesus Christ. So this morning, I want to challenge us as a church to treasure Christ together by embracing the call to be ordinary. And this will include three things. So first, we embrace our call to be ordinary. By first, we must pray Fervently. Pray fervently. Verse 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The word in here is an important one. It's the word telos, which does not mean end in the sense of something ceasing or terminating. It's the idea of a Maybe a goal, an achieved goal, or a fulfilled purpose, or fulfillment realized. It's not just the end of something, it's the, the culmination, the conclusion, the goal, the fulfillment. Peter is saying the final fulfillment is at hand. The culmination of all things is at hand. And this refers to none other than the second coming of Christ. Jesus has come once to be born of man, to live the life we should have lived, to die the death we should have died. For our sins, that the Bible makes clear He's coming a second time. He's going to come to judge the world and He's going to come to fully and finally consummate His kingdom. The kingdom of man as we know it will be eradicated at, at His coming and when His kingdom spreads from throughout all the earth. So the, the culmination of all things is wrapped up in the second coming of Jesus Christ, a theme meant to drive and motivate the instruction in this letter. And really the entire New Testament. Did you know that the, the, the second coming of Christ is mentioned more times than the first coming of Christ? 
Something like five times to one in the New Testament. Actually, 23 of the 27 books speak of the second coming of Christ in the New Testament. And notice it says here that the the second coming of Christ is at hand. It's about to arrive or come near, which speaks of the imminent nature of Jesus' return. In other words, it could happen at any time. Peter reminds us to live in anticipation of the nearness of the return of Christ. This is to bring focus and intentionality to the way we live. Now this may seem strange to us, since we live so long after Peter did. And yet we must remember that our relationship to time is not the same as the Lord's. His second letter, Second Peter 3.8, reminds us that a day for him uh, is a thousand years and vice versa. So it is completely appropriate for Peter to tell, the, tell, tell us the end is at hand even though we have been waiting for 2,000 years. Whether tomorrow or a thousand years from now, the reality is the end is near. It is at hand. Now, you know as well as I do, Some of the most popular selling Christian book titles focus on the attention given to the events and specifically the timing of Christ's second coming. Exact dates and specific time frames have been predicted and then edited or explained away every time they're proven wrong. Uh, We need to be clear, the Bible does say much about the end of all things, but its intent is never for us to figure out the exact time of Christ's second coming. The disciples asked Jesus when he was resurrected, when the time was come, is, is it time now? Is it time to be fulfilled? And he said, no, it's not for you to know. Seasons or times. Rather, the, the New Testament emphasized the second coming of Christ to motivate us towards faithfully living as the church. And this is exactly what we see in verse 7. In light of the expectancy of Christ to return in the end of all things, Peter instructs us to live Sober, self-controlled lives. Since we know the the real meaning and aim of the future, we should be able to rightly assess, assess the significance of the present. We must be sober minded, sane in our thinking. We shouldn't be given over to hysteria, whatever form that comes in, or pleasure seeking. The realization that God is bringing history to a close in Christ should provoke us in with an urgency and dependency on Him manifested in fervent prayer. Peter says, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Man, I'm convinced, as I reflected upon this text this week, I'm convinced the, the longer that I walk with Jesus the number one way you assess a person's faith is to understand their prayer life. Seasons in my life where I have struggled walking with the Lord, you can guarantee my prayer life has been weak. I'm not... I just want to ask you this morning, what does your prayer look like? Do you pray? I'm not asking you, do you you pray before a meal or before before you go to bed, but... Do you commune with God in prayer? Is your Christian life marked by prayer? Because if we possess sober thoughts about God, about ourselves and the reality of human history, then 
we will be urgent and fervent in prayer because we will be dependent upon Him. Not on anything else. To be a faithful Christian, we must embrace the ordinary life of fervent prayer. God has gifted God has gifted me with a passion and a zeal. Man, I'll be honest, I, I'm a guy who can fill up a whiteboard with ideas and, and vision casting faster than anyone. But it's that question that often gets overlooked, which is most important. But have I prayed? Have we prayed? Have you prayed? That's the real question. We have the privilege of taking part in the extraordinary life of the gospel. God is redeeming a people from all tribes and nations of the world. He is building His great global people known as the church. And we get to take part in this reality here at the Hill. And we do so first and foremost by embracing this ordinary task of crying out to our Father. Of seeing what God is doing in the world and fervently praying towards that end. Fervently praying for Christ's kingdom. Prayer is part and parcel of what it means to be the church in the New Testament. One of my favorite quotes on prayer. I don't know who wrote it. Some say Martin Luther, some say Martin Luther King. So Martin Luther wrote it. Which one? We don't know. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. Church, what does it look like to treasure Christ together? We must depend upon Christ. And we do so first by praying. Prayer should be our, our first response. Maybe you should write that down in your notes. But have I prayed? Prayer should be our first response, not our last resort. I've always loved the quote by, you've heard me quote it before, by missionary William Carey. He says, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But you know what? I'm convinced the, the, the longer I pastor, the more I walk with Jesus, the more I'm a father and a husband, that, that part about attempt great things for God has more to do with prayer than anything else. First, we must pray fervently, church. Second, we must love earnestly. Verses 8 and 9. Peter says, Above all, or maybe you see, of first importance, keep loving one another earnestly. Notice there's, a, there's an order of importance to Peter's instructions. He gets at that point where Peter says, Look, whatever you do, don't miss this. I'm going to say that in my sermon often. If you're sleeping, wake up. Listen to this. If you possess the, the proper perspective on the end, if you are fervent in prayer, then your primary concern must be to turn to your brothers and sisters around you and keep loving them earnestly, Peter says. But again, why is this instruction to love one another so important? With everything these Christians are facing. In the midst of, of persecution, of suffering and displacement, why is this of first importance, he says? I think 
First, because God is love. 1 John 4, 8. Yes, we, we know of God's wrath, but the Bible never says God is wrath. We have to provoke God's wrath. But we don't have to provoke Him to love. Love for the undeserving flows from who God is. And this is why our earnest love for one another is so important. By it is how we display the beauty of God's very character in this world. We must love. And Peter says we must love earnestly. This word earnest or fervent speaks of an abundant, intense, eager love. It gives the idea of being stretched or strained. It's the image of, you've seen the snapshot at the close of a race when sprinters are going across and they're stretching and straining. Their muscles are, are, are pushing forward. They're stretching themselves to the limit to get across the line. That's the, that's the image here. Peter used this word back in 122 where he speaks of this supernatural reality that accompanies this love. He says in 122, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for in sincere brotherly love, love one another. How? Earnestly. From a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the abiding, through the living and abiding word of God. The love Peter speaks of here is it's demanding. It's stretching. It's sacrificial. It's a love which requires all of our spiritual muscle. It's a love that loves despite insult, injury. Rejection, misunderstanding, mistreatment. It's a 1 Corinthians type of love. 1 Corinthians 13 type of love. It's a supernatural love made possible solely through the gospel. Look, the reality is in the gospel, God has not loved us moderately. In Christ, God never loves us on a surface level, He doesn't love us from a distance. He loves us earnestly, sacrificially. He created us to share in His presence and glory out of His love, His sheer love. Yet we've sinned. We've turned away from Him. We've turned away from His love. And because He created us, because He is holy and just and righteous, God would be perfectly just and absolutely right to send each of us to an eternal hell separated it for him forever. He would be absolutely right to do that. But the gospel says, in an extraordinary act of love, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live the life we should have lived, to perfectly obey the law which we disobey, and to die the death we deserve for our sin. The Bible says he died in our place as our substitute for our sin. And then he rose again. Three days later, demonstrating not only his love, but that his love is accompanied with a specific power to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to provide us eternal life with him. If we will repent and embrace his earnest love in the gospel, in Christ, do you know this earnest love? I'm not talking about a general love. I'm talking about the particular love of God in Christ where He bore your sins in His body on the tree and died. 
Have you turned from your sin to embrace His particular, earnest love for you? Church, is this earnest love in the gospel the center of our lives together? It must be. Let's not fool ourselves. The only, only way we can love one another earnestly is by embracing and relying upon God's earnest love in the gospel. That's it. And earnest love is an uncommon thing. It can hurt. It'll probably make you lose face. It will make you vulnerable. And when you love earnestly, you will be taken advantage of. But when we love earnestly, we display the beauty of the gospel and the earnest love we've received in Christ. Jesus says, The world will know that you are my disciples by the way you love one another. What do you mean by that? Well, I think he meant twofold. Look back in chapter 13 of John to what he, what he just did. He got down on his knees, assumed the posture of a slave, and washed the disciples' feet. And then he went to the cross. That's what he ultimately meant. He laid his very life down in an act of love. And we do this, verse 8 says, because love covers a multitude of sin. Christian love, empowered by the gospel, forgives quickly. It forgives often, and it does so over and over and over and over and over again. As one author says, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some large ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion. Every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflict abounds to Satan's perverse delight. Peter says this love demands we are hospitable to one another without complaint. Hospitality is the idea. It's literally the, the word literally means the love of stranger. It's the idea of loving those not like us. Those who are less familiar with us. That we're less familiar with. First century, this had a specific application for traveling believers. They were to show hospitality to them. In, this, in, Peter's, in this moment of this letter, there's a particular application for Peter's audience to a group of displaced, scattered believers. They were to love those not like them by showing hospitality. Let's be honest. We find it easy to love those like us. Friends, our, our friends and those who have the same common interest as us, those who are most common with us, that's pretty easy. We're quick to, to love those of a similar age, similar stage of life, similar passion, similar political affiliation, similar understanding of theology. But here the command is to love those who are different than you. And to love them, not just love them at a distance, but to love them earnestly, the Bible says. And look, hospitality deals with opening our hearts and our homes. Hospitality is tied up with the imagery of a table. It has to do with sharing and 
fellowshipping with those not like us. I want to issue a call to you as our church. We have the, the, the beautiful reality of, of multiple worlds colliding in what we did as a replant. We have the beauty of having a more senior generation. We have a beauty of having a younger generation. We have different cultures. We have different expressions. We have people who go to our church and have been going to our church for a long time and may know each other's name but don't know each other beyond that. In a real sense, you're kind of strangers. You're different. God made you that way. Your life experience, what brought you to the hill, you're different. And I want to challenge you. There's people in this church who you see every week and you may even say things like, I'd like to get to know them better. I want to challenge you to reach out to them. Have them to lunch after service. Better yet, open your home. Love one another earnestly. Do that with hospitality, without grumbling. Get to know one another. And see what God can do in our midst. And that's difficult. How do we do that? I think first we remember two things. We remember the hospitality shown us in the gospel. We were all strangers and aliens to God's table. And he took the initiative in Christ to love us by serving us on the cross. He has welcomed us into his kingdom completely at his expense. Secondly, though, we need to remember the hospitality. We need to remember the hospitality we've been shown, but secondly, we need to remember the hospitality which awaits each one of us. The Bible says there is a, a table awaiting us in heaven. We have a seat sealed and secured by Christ. We will be welcomed into, as Peter says in chapter 1, our internal inheritance on the basis of God's stranger love towards us by His hospitality, by His earnest love for us in the gospel. So look, let's be ordinary. Let's pray fervently. Let's love earnestly. Thirdly, let's serve faithfully. Verses 10 and 11. As each one has received a, a special gift, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as God's stewards of, as good stewards of God's varied grace. Our call as Christians is to serve and to do so faithfully as God has gifted us. Now again, the word serve is an extremely ordinary word. It speaks of waiting tables. It means to, to wait on people. It's a busboy. It's a table waiter. Our call as the church is to, is to give ourselves to the ordinary task of serving one another. And we're all called to do this. No one gets to duck this one. There's no excuses here. No believer gets out of this. And this is why we, we place a, a high emphasis on our second mark as a disciple, as a loving servant. We need to grow in that area. If you are 
a believer, and especially if you're a member of the hill, you are called to serve. And I can say that with confidence. Why? Because God himself has equipped you for the task. That's what our text says. Peter says, we are to serve out of the gift each has received. Every Christian has at least one gift. One spiritual endowment received following their conversion. To be born of the Spirit, to be, born from, to be brought from darkness to light is to be gifted for service to the body, or as Peter says here, service to one another. 1 Corinthians 12 says it this way. There are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are a variety of service, but the same Lord. And there are a variety of activities, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one, so it is with Christ. Notice there are a variety of gifts administered to each believer by the Spirit. Now we do find lists of spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians and Rome, 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, and both are very important. But neither of these are exhaustive. God graces us with a variety of gifts, all of which are given not for the benefit of you, not for the benefit of me, not for the benefit of the individual, for the common good of the body. Look, we cannot control how God has gifted us. He gifted us out out of His grace. He's graciously done this. But we can control how we use the gifts God has graciously given us. The text says we steward them by putting them into service. We're simply stewards of God's gifts He's graciously given us. And we need to point out that the the shape of the gifts will not be exactly like other believers. We don't determine our readiness to serve or our giftedness to serve by the way someone else serves in the same capacity. The shape of our gift will be not exactly like other believers. It says here, right? It comes from God's varied grace, as the end of verse 10 says. Look, if you're not serving within the body in some capacity, and we'll unpack what some capacity looks like, You're hoarding a gift God has given you, graciously given you. And the body at large is suffering from it. But look, I don't want to limit you to serving in the body by simply looking at the, the visible ways of serving on a Sunday morning. Those are included. But remember, God gifts us in a variety of ways. Maybe you do need to serve in children's ministry. Maybe you don't. Maybe you do need to use your musical gifting. But you're fearful about being up front. Maybe that's the case. But maybe you have the the gift of hospitality, the gift of giving, the gift of encouragement, but you are not willing to get close enough to people to make time for people in this body to benefit us in the way God has gifted you. How has God gifted you? Are you being faithful with that gift? 
And Peter provides us, I think, two general examples, and maybe we can say categories of how God's gifts should be used. He says, first, whoever speaks, probably covering a variety of speaking gifts, including preaching, teaching, evangelism, exhortation, etc., it is to, to be done as one who speaks the very words of God, oracles of God. God has not gifted me to speak my own opinions. He hasn't gifted anyone to speak their own opinions. Their own ideas or so-called wisdom. I only serve you by speaking under and by the authority of God. And that's what it says here. My call is to speak utterances of God, not of man. How do I do that? I preach the Word. That's what I do. And the other broad class of gifts refers to whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God has supplied. Maybe we could say there are speaking gifts and and service gifts. Not that speaking doesn't serve as well, but two categories here. And the point here is that we, we serve energized by the Spirit. Walking in the Spirit, not not in the flesh. We serve in the strength God provides, not in our own. Now, this includes me, so it's probably true about you. We, We typically refuse to serve in areas where we feel less adequate, uncomfortable, or that which seems, we say, beyond us, outside of our comfort zones. And maybe that's a maybe that's saying you, you shouldn't serve there, but maybe that's exactly where God wants you to serve. Because if we want to be used by God, you will have to serve in such a way you are fully dependent upon Him. Our call to be ordinary requires us to serve faithfully in light of God's gifting. So I want to challenge you again this morning as a church. How are you serving us as a body? And again, that doesn't mean you need to say, I've got to go learn an instrument. I've got to learn how to preach. I've got to go teach the kids. It might mean that. How are you looking to one another in the body and saying, how has God given me life experiences? What has He done with me in Christ? How has He gifted me as a follower of Jesus where I can lift up, encourage, build up the body? But look, we don't need to miss the aim or the goal behind us embracing this call. Or what I'm calling being ordinary. Verse 11 closes with a, with a doxology, with a, with a praise. And it states here, In order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter's so passionate about what he just said. There's so much force behind the instruction he just gave the church that he has to lift it up in a praise, in an exaltation. So what's the intent behind Peter's call for us to live the the faithful, ordinary Christian life? The intent is that God would be glorified. There's an extraordinary aim to our ordinary living. Our lives are to praise Him, to give glory to and declare the very glory of God. And this takes place through Jesus Christ, the text says. To Him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen.
Can I just remind you? We serve a ordinary Savior. Jesus is God born in the flesh. He's born in a manger in Bethlehem. He was Mary's son, a carpenter. He's from the town of Nazareth where it was commonly said nothing good can ever come out of Nazareth. He did attract great crowds. And he did extraordinary miracles. But he really only had a faithful few, really about 12, who followed him. They were mostly fishermen and simple, ordinary men. Yes, this extended to about 100 by the end of his life, but this would be hardly anything to rave about as a significant leader in his day. Cultural standards, he had missed the mark. He would enter the polarizing city of Jerusalem. Yes, he would. But he did so on the back of a donkey. He was written off by those of importance in the community. Eventually he was rejected, executed by them. He died on an obscure, he died an obscure death as a criminal on a cross outside of the city gates for all to walk at, look by, wag their heads and point to as a shameful disgrace. He was ordinary in every sense. But it was his ordinariness which solidified his extraordinary identity and status as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Philippians 2 describes him, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Emptied himself meaning he took on humanity. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Interpretation. Dude was extremely ordinary. Extremely ordinary. And because of this, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Man, do you you wake up some days and just say, I'm too ordinary to serve God. You missed the whole point. It's the person that wakes up and looks in the mirror and says, man, God kind of broke the mold when he made me. You know, I'm pretty, I got it going on. Whether we verbally say that or whether we think that in our head. That's the one that's a clanging cymbal. A banging gong. And that will never be used by the Lord. It's the one who wakes up every day and says, this is all I got, Lord. I don't have the strength to do this. I'm an ordinary dude, but here it is. God will use that. And God will get glory in that. And us as a church, when we don't pat ourselves on the back for anything, but we say, man, we got more holes than we have good things going on. We want to make it better, but we know, we see, we understand. We're very, very ordinary. It's that church that God can use for His glory. We must embrace our call to be ordinary. 
because God has chosen the ordinary to point to the magnitude of His extraordinary glory in Christ. We live in light of the second coming. When we live the ordinary life of fervent prayer, of earnest love and faithful service to one another, to point, we do all of that, to point to the very glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look, Peter, I love it. He can't resist by throwing an amen on there, right? Amen simply meaning, let it be so. Amen. So we are to embrace our call to be ordinary for the glory of our great King. Our ordinariness is what gives us our distinctiveness and our attractiveness. And let's not, let's not miss the, the evangelistic and missional pulse behind this passage because Peter's not telling us, hey, just don't worry about everybody else. Just like love one another, serve one another, don't worry about it. No, that's not what he's saying at all. We could go to multiple places, but... When he defines them, he says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for your own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He said, Be that so the advancement of his name will go forth in our neighborhoods, in our nations, to the end of the earth. He's called us to this life to advance his glory by his name in this world. So church, I want to challenge you. Man, just be ordinary. Join me. Hold me accountable. So just be ordinary. To embrace our call to be ordinary. Let's, let's pray fervently. Let's love earnestly. Let's serve faithfully for the advancement of God's great glory in this world through Jesus Christ. That's how we treasure Christ together. Amen. We treasure Christ together by faithfully living giving ourselves to his ordinary means of ministry, modeled and empowered by the gospel. I'm going to pray and close out. I ask a question there when we were in the middle of the sermon there about do you know the earnest love of God in Christ? Again, I'm not saying did you grow up and your parents told you God loves you. That's a good thing. Do you know how God has loved you? He's loved you by dying for you, by rising again and offering you eternal life. He's loved you by giving you the opportunity to accept Him as your Lord and Savior. You want to know more about that? Let nothing stop you but yourself. I'll be here after service. We can chat. We can open the Word. Maybe today would be the day you come to know Jesus. Church, let's be ordinary. And that means who's on your left and who's on your right. Pray fervently. Love earnestly. Serve faithfully. And let's trust that by so doing, we will be able to exalt the name of God and the Lord Jesus Christ in our neighborhood. Father, thank you for the beauty of Jesus. Lord, if someone was trying to make up Christianity, they would have never done it the way it was done. An ordinary, seemingly ordinary carpenter. A seemingly ordinary 
baby born in a backwater town. A man who spent the majority of his day with 12 men who seemed to never get it. A man who would ultimately come into the religious center of Jerusalem and be rejected, insulted, and killed by the religious leaders. Hung as a shameful criminal for all to look at. But Lord, the reality is that was your plan of redemption. And that cannot be a plan of man. And we thank you for those of us who have seen the Lord Jesus. That you open up our eyes to see him and embrace him. But I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you. Trying to figure out what it means to be a Christian. It means embracing the ordinary man, Jesus, who is actually God in the flesh, the one and only, the King of kings and Lord of lords, embracing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for us as a church. Lord, keep us grounded, keep us rooted in the identity of our Savior. Help us to be a, a simple, ordinary people. We just want to be faithful day to day. I want to trust that you will do with us as you see fit. Challenge us today, Lord, where we need to pray more. Challenge us today how we need to love more earnestly. Challenge us today, Lord, where we need to serve more faithfully. But not for Pastor Jimmy, not for the Hill Church, for the advancement of your great name in this world. Love you. Thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.